I'm going to invite you to turn to Esther chapter 7 this morning. Esther chapter 7. With the start of the new year, uh, several things I like to encourage you to do um, each year. One is to read through the entire New Testament. And um, we've been working through a Bible plan at our church um, where we read through the entire New Testament and half of the Old Testament so that in two years you will have read through the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once. And so if you started that plan last year, you will see on the new Bible reading schedule in your bulletin um, that we're beginning with Ezra there for the Old Testament and then Acts for the New, but uh, you will go through the entire New Testament. And also the book of Psalms, you will go through that as well each year. For those of you who are... uh, a uh, little more techy. Um, you probably have gotten rid of paper a long time ago, so if you want to follow along with that same plan, you can uh, get that on version. Uh, it's the Robert Murray McShane uh, daily Bible reading plan. We do half of his plan. He, he actually works through the entire Old Testament in one year and the New Testament twice. So if you, you were to look that version up at another time other than right now, then uh, you would find that it will fall along the same schedule as what we're doing as a church. That's just a good practice to make sure that that we are understanding and listening to God, that we have time uh, where we are listening to God on our own, not just once a week or or once a service for each service that we come to, but that each time that we are feeding ourselves each day, really, with the Word of God. And this is a very manageable portion for us to read through on our own and also to reflect on. Uh, Another thing I like to do is to encourage us to memorize Scripture. And so I put some new memory verse packets out in the back and the little baskets out there. Uh, This year we're going to work through Philippians chapter 3 and 4, work through the entire chapters. Most of the time I kind of pick verses all over the place. and uh, I think it's helpful to kind of get a context. There's a couple reasons why I want to do that. So that you have a portion of Scripture that's hidden in your heart. And this will be a valuable portion. It's the portion in chapter 4 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. In fact, that will be one of the verses you have to memorize. Very simply. Um, And I tried to keep the sections short for you so that you could learn these in a week. And and another reason I did it was because we are going to be, um, we're going to be studying the book of Philippians at the end of next year. And what a helpful way uh, for each of us, if we have been working on memorizing that throughout the year, then by the time that we get to that, you will probably already know all those verses by heart. And you will have meditated on them because really that's what what happens when you memorize. In, in order for you to memorize, you have to meditate. You have to think about what you're saying because you're basically repeating the same verse or phrase over and over again in your mind and it, it, it almost forces you to meditate. And, uh, and so that will be a helpful way for you to meditate on that passage of Scripture, chapters 3 and 4, before we even get there. And so I, I've made those available to you in the New American Standard uh, version. If you want a different version, I'd be happy to make a set for you in a different version. Um, and you can place these on your mirror in the, your bathroom so that while you're getting ready each day, you can reflect on them or on the dash in your car or something like that. Um, and then I would encourage you, if you do take one of those, to also grab someone else in the church, a partner, that you can recite the verses to. Because you will know the verse better 
if you recite it to someone else than if you just take them and just kind of read over them. But no scripture uh, is worse than, than just taking them. So I would encourage you just to at least take a packet if you're going to use them. If you're not going to use them, please don't take them. It takes you know, time and effort to put those together. So those are for your uh, spiritual well-being, and I hope that you take advantage of them uh, this year. Well, we're working through the book of Esther, and we're all the way to Esther chapter 7. We have two more sections to go after today. And and you know that uh, if you've been around church for a long time, you know that in the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. Not one time. Prayer is not mentioned. Sacrifice is not mentioned. Worship is not mentioned. And so we wonder where God is. And yet, through this story, I hope you have seen, especially in chapter 6 that we looked at last time, that God is very active. Uh, I think the turning point in the story, in fact, is chapter 6, verse 1, where it says the king could not sleep. The Jews understood that to be that that God kept sleep from him. And this was a turning point because at this point we had two tracks running side by side. Esther Esther and her people were going to be destroyed, the Jews, and Haman uh, was seeking to rise in power. Both of them were coming to the king with a request. Esther was coming with a request to spare the Jews and and uh, bring down some judgment on Haman who brought about this indictment on them. And Haman was coming with a request to kill Mordecai prematurely. So you have two people coming to the king to ask something of him. And before the request is made by either one of them, Chapter 6, verse 1 says the king could not sleep. And if you know the story, you know what happens next. That, that uh, because he could not sleep, he asked for the chronicles to be read of his reign, apparently. And throughout the night, the, the chronicles are being read, the congressional record uh, of the day, basically. And he gets to the point where Mordecai had protected him against an assassination plot, and the king says, what have we done for Mordecai? And of course... Uh, uh, nothing had been done, had been done, and so in that we see that God is very active; that His powerful, providential hand is at work within uh, within this story, and and God very much goes to the background uh, because He is not mentioned. We don't have Him explicitly stated. He doesn't come out from a vision from heaven. He doesn't speak loudly. He simply He simply works providentially through life. And you know, that, that's important because that's the way that it is here in our lives as well, isn't it? That we, um, th- that, we, uh, that we have God at work within our lives, and yet He doesn't speak audibly to us, to us does he? he? He speaks to us through His Word, and he, he works in us in a very subtle way. This is how God is at work. And, and so I think a story like Esther is very helpful. I've found it to be very uh, informative for my own life and, and uh, thinking about God in the right way. So let's read this uh, passage of Scripture that we're going to study this morning, Esther chapter 7. I'll begin in verse, I'll begin in verse 1, Esther chapter 7. This is the Word of God. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. 
Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then the king Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the, palace, into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed the gallows standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Life goes on without commentary. It goes on without commentary in this passage of Scripture. It goes on in our lives as well. And and we're going to see now, while Haman once had gone to a place of quick uh, leadership or quick ruling, he was basically second in command in all of Persia, he now has his roles reversed. We start to see the, the, the tides shift. That now Haman is destroyed and Mordecai is now going to be raised to a place of second in command. Haman basically comes to power without any commentary. Uh, there's not a whole lot of discussion as to why he comes to power. He simply is is put into a pl- place of great leadership. Now, we would expect Mordecai to be that one to be put into a place of great leadership because he's the one who stopped the assassination plot. He was already an official that was sitting at the, at the uh, city gates there and he stops an assassination plot against the king, and you expect Mordecai to be raised up to power right when he does that. But instead, in the very next chapter, Haman's the one who's raised to power. And he has developed this deep hatred for Mordecai, as you remember, for Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman and to show him reverence. Remember that he wouldn't stand at, at uh, Haman's at Haman's uh, entrance. He wouldn't give him reverence. And so he went to the king slyly and asked permission to destroy a group of people without naming them because they have defied the king. That they are defying the king and his law. That they are not bowing down to the one who is second in command, Haman. And so all the people in the land must be like this. So let's destroy every last one of them. And you know what the king does? He signs off on it. He gives the signet ring over to Haman and allows him to write this law without knowing the name of the people who are, are, are going to be destroyed, without knowing the ethnic group that's going to be destroyed. And you remember when, when that went, went down, they ended up just, while all of 
Persia was left in confusion as to why this law would be put in place, the king and Haman are sitting down for a drink. Well, Haman hates Mordecai, and if that's not enough that that um, that he has this law put in place, he he despises Mordecai even more than he despises the Jews, and so he wants to see him hung prematurely. And so his wife and his advisors give him an idea: why not build a set of gallows that are 75 feet high and make a spectacle out of Mordecai? Because he failed to bow to you, Haman. And so uh, this pleases Haman. And apparently these men are working through the night. While they're working, the first banquet takes place. Okay, so that's uh, that's the one track that we have over here. Haman working to to basically he wants everybody to see him as he sees himself, as great and powerful. He wants everybody to recognize him as great and and special. But Mordecai doesn't. And so even though everybody else bows to him, he cannot live with himself if Mordecai still is allowed to exist, even though Mordecai's death sentence has already been written nine months from then. He wants to see him dead early. So he builds a set of gallows. The other track is Esther. Esther, you remember, had been chosen as queen, and she godlessly hid her identity as a Jew. She um, took part in some immoral practices in, in order to get her spot as queen. And she has eaten the king's meat. She has defied God. And she has learned about this destruction that is brought down on her people. And... In order to save herself, she finds out from Mordecai, in order to save herself and her people, she has to risk her life and go before the king. Now this was risky because no one could enter the inner court of the king without first being summoned by the king. If a person did that, if they came into the king's court without being summoned, what would happen to them? They'd be killed. Okay, and so... What Esther has to do is go into the inner court without being summoned and risk her life. He could accept the, extend the golden scepter and allow her to come in, or he could carry out her execution like she deserves, because that's in the law. And so she has to risk her life, identify herself as a Jew, which she hasn't done up until this point, and ask the king to spare herself and the Jews. Well, as we saw last time, she's granted permission to speak to him. But instead of speaking her request, she asks the king and Haman to do what? Come to a banquet that I've prepared for you. And so they come that very day, and the king sits down with, with her, and Haman, he's all proud because, hey, this is a VIP uh, banquet that only me and the king and the queen are, are going to. And, and the king says, all right, Esther, I know when you came before me, when you risk your life in coming to the inner court, I know when you did that, you weren't asking, or you weren't doing that in order to get a banquet with me. So, what's your real request? What do you want up to half my kingdom? And do you remember what she says? Let's have another banquet, and I'll tell you tomorrow. Okay, I'll prepare a banquet for you tomorrow, and and so that's kind of where we picked it up. That that's uh, what has taken place up until this point. And again, Haman is invited to this 
uh, the second time. And so he's all proud. He goes home, but he's, he tells his family, I have all these things. I have this wealth and, and all these great things, and I'm the only one going to this banquet. But if I can't have uh, Mordecai bow down to me, none of that stuff means anything to me. If Mordecai still defies me, I have a problem. And so in chapter 6, we have between the two banquets that, um, that this, this uh, period of time where the king can't sleep takes place. And he has the chronicles read be- before him, as I mentioned. And then the rest of chapter 6 shows that Haman thinks that he's going to be the one that's honored, you remember, and yet it is Mordecai that the king is talking about. And so Haman is forced to ride Mordecai through the town with the king's horse, with the king's apparel on, and shout, this is what the king this is what happens to those the king delights to honor. And so that's where we pick up the story in chapter seven, verse one. Uh, notice uh, verse two, the king said to Esther on the second day, so this is the second banquet that is prepared. They're drinking wine at the banquet as we see in verse one, and as they're drinking wine, the king says, Alright, you risked your life to come before me, and you asked for a banquet. And at that banquet, you asked for another banquet. I know that's not your request. So what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, verse 2. What do you want? I'll give you anything. Materially, some better servants, more, uh, uh, you know, a new house. You want the money? What, what is it? I've been waiting to find out what it is you want because it must be important. And uh, so finally, she states her request in verses 3 and 4. First we see her hesitation in verse 3. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. She stays very vague, doesn't she? And she doesn't come out and say, you know, I and my people are going to be killed. She, She basically, in reverence to the king, asks for her life to be spared. And she asks her request in verse 4, and she still remains vague. She doesn't even say that she's a Jew. She says, my people have been given a death sentence, in effect. And so please spare me. Please spare us. She never states that she's a Jew there. Look at verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and annihilated. And she goes on at the end of verse 4 and says, you know, if we had been sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. If it were just the fact that we, me and my people, were sold as slaves, I wouldn't have had a, had a problem. But because we're, we have a death sentence that we are uh, uh, not too far away from being completely annihilated, then I have to speak. Now, why did she say something like this at the end of verse 4? It could be that she was saying that, you know, I can handle being a slave, but I can't handle death. Maybe that's what she was saying. But I think it's probably... She was probably speaking to the king's desires, the king's uh, resources. So instead, not, you know, I, I wouldn't mind being a slave. I really can't die, but I wouldn't mind being a slave. No, it's probably this, that, you know, for you, king, it would be a huge loss if all the Jews in the land died. For one, you'd lose me, right? Your choice wife. And and for two, you would lose all the resources that come with all the Jews that are spread throughout the land. The industry that comes from the sheer volume of Jews that there are in the empire. The tax revenue. In other words, 
it would be more beneficial for you, king, to destroy Haman and allow me and my people to live than it would be for us to die. It's more financially profitable for you, king. So if I had been sold as a slave, you could still get the financial benefit from that. But that's not the case. You're going to lose all that tax revenue, all that industry. And in verses 5 and 6, Haman is exposed as the culprit. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, there asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? I think the king knew what was going on. Notice the words that she uses in verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. Those are the very same words that were written in the law for all the Jews to be done. Now, maybe the king didn't have access to the law. At the very least, he didn't know that Queen Esther was a Jew. But, but do you think the king knew that he had agreed to this already? Whatever the case, he asked the questions. Well, who would do something like this? Who would do something like this? You know, you wonder if Haman even knew if Esther was a Jew. Do you think Haman would risk his life by indicting Esther, by giving her, uh, putting her name basically on a list to be destroyed? I don't know that he would. So he may not have known that, that Esther was a Jew, which speaks further to her uh, hiding of her identity as she has done from the beginning of the story. And uh, whatever the case, the king the king is not let in to the exact ethnic group of the people until... He, he finds out who actually brought about this law against them. And I think she purposely remains vague in order to bring his guard down. Okay, Think about if she would have changed this around, if she would have walked into the king, Okay, she could have done this the first day, but, but even at this banquet, she could have walked into the king and said, King, Haman is a wicked man. Immediately, what's going to happen to the king? He puts his guards up. No, 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 wait a second. This is my trusted advisor. This is my second-hand man. He, he's, he's, he's my, my guy. You can't say, come in here and say that he's wicked. Instead, she says, she, she basically gives the charge against her people in order to bring his guard down. And then he asks who did it, and then she mentions Haman. This is similar to what the prophet Nathan did to David. Do you remember? It wouldn't have worked if he came in and said, David, you have acted wickedly. You've taken advantage of a man and have had an immoral relationship with a woman that you should not have done. The effect would not have worked as it did. The prophet Nathan did what instead? He tells David a story about a guy who steals some some animals from another person's farm, a helpless man. And David said, that person ought to die. And Nathan says what? You are the man, David. You took advantage of a helpless man. And so this is what I think Esther is wisely doing here. She's she's bringing down the defenses of the king in order to indict a man who is very well loved by the king, Haman. And so she names him in verse 6, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. 
And the text says that he became terrified. He was uh, dumbfounded here. The New Living Translation says that Haman grew pale with fright. He was just so fearful for his life. He knew that his life was in the hands of Queen Esther, which is why he didn't immediately go to the king to beg for his life from the king. Instead, what did he do? He went to Esther. When the king left the room, he begs for his life. The king, in verse 7, is filled with anger. He rose in his anger from drinking wine and went to the palace garden. Certainly, he must have been angry at Haman for putting him in such a predicament, but he also had to recognize that he, as the king, was partially responsible, right? He was the one who handed over the signet ring. He even had that conversation. It wasn't like he gave him a blank check and Haman wrote a check for you know a million dollars. And wait a second, you wrote for too much money. No, he first Haman asked, "Can I do this?" And the king said, "Here you go. Sign my name to it." He, in other words, he approved the order of execution against the Jews. The king knew that he had been indicted. That when the queen brought this problem before him, that she was going to be destroyed. He recognized that he was the, likely the culprit. He was part of the problem. And so he left in anger. What was he going to do? What was he going to do? If he judged Haman, wouldn't he look crooked because he was the one who signed his name to it? And further, how was he going to deal with this problem? How was he going to keep Esther and the Jews from being destroyed? Right? Because it was written in the law of the Medes and the Persians And those laws can never be what? They can never be changed. They can't be repealed. They can't be revoked. You can't just wipe them out. It's like our Constitution. If you want to change something in there, you have to add another amendment to it. You you, you can't go back and just kind of tear parts of the Constitution out, right? And that's the way it was with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. They were very serious about carrying through with these laws. And so the king knew, okay, I have a problem. If I charge Haman, I'm indicting myself. And further, how am I going to handle this problem? How am I going to reverse a law that can't be reversed? And so he leaves in anger. He had a lot to think about, didn't he? Well, Haman's demise is listed for there at the end of the chapter. The second part of verse 7 tells us that he begged for his life to the queen. He knew that his only hope of survival was to to go before her and seek her mercy. But when the king returns, he sees Haman begging at her feet. This would be very normal in the ancient Near East. A person would grab the feet of the person that they were begging. And this is what the king sees. And the king very well knew what was going on. He knew that... I'm. I personally think that the king knew that he wasn't assaulting his wife, but instead he used this as an excuse to indict Haman. So he stands from a distance, sees Haman begging at her feet and says, is he assaulting my wife in the palace with me here? Is he really doing that? He acts with violence and and with impulse. Look at verse 8. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's 
mouth, they covered Haman's face. No sooner did he say, how dare he assault my wife? That his servants come and cover his face. You can picture with the black cloth to take him to his execution. I mean, uh, the king certainly must, must have known what was going on here, that he was simply begging for his life, not assaulting her. I think this was an excuse that he was using in order to get rid of Haman and in order to save face because he was the one who ordered the decree by handing his signet ring over to Haman. And so Haman, in verse 8 at the end, receives a death sentence. That's why they put the hood over his face. It's not that he's going to be taken off to prison, but he's going to be killed. And it's kind of ironic, if you think about it, that Haman is killed as a result of a false accusation against him. He wasn't actually assaulting the wife. He wasn't attempting to assault the wife of the king, was he? And yet, that's exactly how the Jews were indicted before. They were indicted, they, they were sentenced to death based on a false accusation. It was true that Haman was defiant, and maybe he should have been killed as a result of that, but not all the Jews. Not all the Jews were defiant of the law of the king. Whatever the case, Haman is, is, is uh, about to be killed. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in verse 9, reports another charge against Haman that apparently the king didn't know about. And that is that he had built a gallows to destroy Mordecai. Look at verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high or 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And and, and so you you may not know this, but... I don't know if you saw that big structure out there in the, in the middle of the city, but that's Haman. And he was planning to destroy Mordecai. And now, remember, this makes chapter 6 that much more important. Why? Because it was in chapter 6 where the king remembered that Mordecai had saved him from an assassination plot. So Mordecai now is a trusted servant of the king. And for Haman to turn his hand against not only his wife, the queen, and all these Jews, but against this Mordecai who had protected the king, that makes Haman exactly what Esther said that he was. A foe and an enemy is this vile or wicked Haman. And so the king makes a quick decision at the end of verse 9, hang him on these gallows. And in verse 10, he is indeed hanged on these gallows is exactly what his wife had predicted, not not the hanging part, but that he would be destroyed. That if you turn out to be the enemy of a person whom the king honors, Mordecai, then you will be destroyed yourself, Haman. What she didn't understand was that she and her family would also be destroyed as a result of his sin. That will uh, take place in the chapters to come. After they hanged Haman on the gallows, verse 10, the king's anger subsided. What was so special about this group of people? I said God's name's not mentioned, but God is certainly working in the background. What's so special about the Jews? Why is it that God has, has chosen them? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. 
Because I think often we think wrongly about the people, the Jewish people, the Jewish Jewish race. Think about think about this story. If all things being equal, except the victims of this law, okay, all things in the world and in history were all equal except the victims of this law. Instead of the the, the victims being the Jews, imagine that they were the Egyptians. Okay, God's chosen people are still the Jews, but but for some reason the Persians are attacking the Egyptians. Haman compelled the king to make a law to kill all Egyptians. Do you think God would have providentially stepped in and reversed this law or at least stopped this law in some way to kill all the Egyptians? Well, we don't know for sure, but we don't have any biblical reason why He would. But we do have a biblical reason why He would step in and stop the Jewish race from being destroyed, don't we? Because they are God's special people. The fact is that Haman, it wasn't that Haman hated the Jews so much, he hated Mordecai. So why is it that God would spare these specific people? Why would he spare this specific race? And what you're going to see in this passage here in Deuteronomy is that God is compelled to spare Israel. Not because they are godly and everyone else is not, but simply because of one fact. See if you can find it with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Why did God spare these people? What was so special about them? Chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did God choose them? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces, to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Why was Israel God's special people? Was it because of their godliness, according to these verses? Was it because they were greater in number than all the other tribes that existed in the world at that time? What does the text tell us? The Lord did not set, verse 7, His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number, verse 8, but because the Lord loved you. That's it. God chose Israel because He loved them, because He chose to love them. God chose Israel because He had promised something to their forefathers. It was not because they were better or holier than any other group of people necessarily, but because God chose Israel to love them. And the same applies to your life as a Christian. Why is it that God chose you? Why did God choose you? Is it because you're lovelier than some other people He could have chosen? Is it because you would make a better servant? Was it because you sought Him out? No. 
simply because God chose to love you. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that. That God simply chose you before the foundation of the world. Not based on any decision that you would make. He simply chose you. If you are a child of His, don't take uh, pride in your position before God as if you had anything to do with it. That's what grace is all about. It's a, continually, it's a continual reminder that we need to have that we are nothing and deserving of nothing but God's wrath. But for some reason, God chose us. God chose us. Simply because He wanted to. God protects His people. And those, this specific grace will never be completely annihilated like Haman wanted to see. They will always be spared. Even in the tribulation, there will be a remnant of Jews that will remain because God had made a promise to their forefathers. You see, God is in control of all things. No amount of power or money can guarantee that our ways will be accomplished. See, Haman had it all, pretty much. He was second in command. He had all this money. But that couldn't guarantee that his plans would be accomplished. Why? Because... A man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Haman thought he had it all figured out, but it was God who had it figured out. It was God who had determined what was going to happen. And the outcome of every situation is dependent ultimately on God. Outcome of every situation is dependent ultimately upon God because God controls it all. We may plan and we should plan, but it's ultimately, the, it's ultimately God who directs our steps. Well, the story is not over yet. We, we, we might think that this is it. Okay, We can just end it right here, but we can't. Because remember, we have this law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. And so that's what we're going to look at over the next two weeks. We have Haman out of the way, but the Jews are still sentenced to die in the 11th month of the year. And this law cannot be reversed. Or, I'm sorry, the twelfth month of the year. But even though they are sentenced to death, we can be sure that God will accomplish what He wants to. That God will have His hand in at work in all of it. And you know, that's the same thing in our lives. You know, we, we may have setbacks. We may... Our plans may fail at times. Things may not go the way we want them to, but we can be sure that God is in it all. That God's hand is in it. Even if He doesn't come out from the clouds and say, hey, I'm there with you. Instead, He comes through His Word and says, hey, I'm there with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said, lo, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the proof of that is I'm sending my spirit to show you that I will be with you all the way to the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your protection and provision in our lives. We know that apart from you, we would be destined to an eternity in hell. Our sins are very deserving of that. You are holy God and you cannot you cannot allow 
sin to go unpunished. And so you provided a way for us. Prior to that, you chose us. And then you sent Jesus Christ to take our place. He lived the life that we could not live, complete righteousness, and He died a death that that would not have worked if we had died it on our own. He died as a perfect satisfaction of Your wrath for all of our sins, and so we are grateful for Your grace. Help us not to be proud in our own in our standing before You. We we know that it's all of grace. It's not by works of righteousness that, that we have done, but according to Your mercy that You saved us. And so because of that, we sing Your mighty power. We, we take joy in, in knowing You and loving You and giving our lives in service, the very least that we could do, give ourselves in service to You. Help us now, we pray, to be able to see Your hand at work in our lives and to believe that You are at work in our lives, that, that You direct all of our steps. May our hearts be filled with joy and love for You and for one another as we seek to serve You. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.